I dig the, the whole linear development. I mean, it's, it's bold, it's strong, you know? Yeah, I feel good about this one, Chris. It all came together. The grain was tight and the cedar took the chisel nicely. I don't know how you do it, you know, working without a net. I mean, I'm a, I'm a constructivist, you know, I weld my pieces, you know, metal on metal, shape on shape, but sculptures, you know, working in marble and wood, like Donatello, Moore, you. <laughs> One slip of the mallet, man, it's all over. It never really enters my mind. No kidding. I visualize the figures in the wood, and the scents are already there. So really, it's just a matter of removing everything that's excess. First with a chainsaw, roughing it out, then with the chisel and adze, liberating the figure from the marble that imprisons it. Michelangelo. Yeah. Yeah, he would have done well with totem poles. Hmm. That was the voice of Leonard, Marilyn's uncle, cousin, I think cousin, Marilyn's uh, cousin, Leonard Quinn Hagak. I don't think they say his last name very often, but I, I see that written down on Moose Chick as his last name. Uh, Leonard is carving a totem pole. And uh, obviously, as you heard, uh, he's discussing with Chris the different uh, approaches to art. I think it's pretty interesting. Chris has sort of this uh, additive approach. He says constructionist, I think he says constructionist, where he's like adding on things piece by piece. Whereas if you think of a totem pole, that's like removing pieces uh, to create your your art. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting idea. He's liberating the figure from the marble that imprisons it. I was kind of confused, though, because Chris was saying that for him, it's really nerve-wracking watching Leonard work because one mistake and you can't undo it, which is true when you're working with that type of uh, canvas. But I don't see how that's not true for Chris as well, because it seems like if you weld something by mistake, you can't unweld it, or at least like it wouldn't leave some sort of a permanent mark. Right, yeah. Yeah, I was a little bit confused as to how Chris himself felt that his art was impermanent. Yeah, I guess with Chris, you know, he could also make these crazy mistakes. Um, but I guess at the end of the day, you know, if you think about it like uh, shooting a movie, like film, using this analogy, if you don't shoot it, you don't have that. Uh, you don't have that piece to work with. So like, or if you lo- if you had like a roll of film that was lost or destroyed, it's just gone. So if you think of like the totem, uh, I mean, maybe this is a terrible analogy, but <laughs> you, th- you think of the totem as being uh, your substance, you know, if you carve away too much, it's you can't add it back on. I mean, I guess you could glue something on. And I think later on, Chris uh, talks with Leonard about you know, altering his 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 totem as a work of art. But there are reasons why they don't want to do that either. Yeah, I actually think that analogy works out pretty well. Okay. So like if you shoot like, let's say, I'm going to make up a number here, like, uh, like 100 hours of film, but you're cutting it down to two and a half hours of film. So you have the totem pole, which is the movie. And then when you edit, you're carving. So you're like removing stuff to get down to what you need to. Uh, but aren't yeah. I missing a... I'm missing a third step, aren't I? Because isn't there an old adage? Uh, isn't there an old saying that says like a movie is created three times, once when it's filmed, once when it's edited, and what's the third step? Well, the saying I believe is once when you write it, once when you shoot it, and then once when you edit it. But then I guess you go. could also say you could also say when someone watches it. That's the that's the next time it's created. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about the writing step. That, that was the, that mm. was the third one. Well, Charles, what are we talking about today? All right, so what we're talking about is Northern Exposure, CBS television sitcom series airing in the 1990s right there. My name is Charles, and I'm always joined here with my co-host, Lee. Thanks, yeah. My name is Lee, 
And I've seen Northern Exposure a number of times. And Charles, this is your first time watching each episode. We're in season four. So, you know, you're a veteran at this point. You kind of get what's going on here. Uh, but, you know, there's always some surprises. Uh, season four, we're on episode 19. It's called Family Feud, directed by Adam Arkin, the actor who portrays Adam in the show. Um, I was surprised he wasn't in the episode, but I guess that makes sense. If you're directing, you probably don't want to be acting at the same time. Yeah, I always find that to be really strange. Uh, I never know how the actors can act in the same thing that they're directing. Because who's going to tell him yeah. on what to do a little bit better? Like, yeah, that's, I guess that's you have mix me up. Yeah, I guess like then the assistant director would need to step up a little more. Uh, whenever the director is not behind the camera or probably the cinematographer would be uh, also someone else who could be, you know, watching the footage and or watching the scene play out and, you know, giving a little bit of direction to the to the director. Uh, let's see. This episode was written by David S.A.L. Again, one of our uh, we tend to like some of the episodes that he has written. Uh, let's see. The Russian Flu, Spring Break, Our Tribe, It Happened in Juno, Northwest Passages. I'm just going like an order. These are all bangers, like really great episodes. Yeah, those are great episodes right there. Uh, as for this episode, I was pretty pleased, but uh, like I, I didn't think it was like a standout episode, but I thought it was like very northern exposure-ish, like it did the thing. But I, I still have my <laughs> gripes on certain plot lines. Uh, I like how to resolve some other ones. But yeah, otherwise it was like a, you know, another trip back to Sicily. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good way of putting it. Another trip back to Sicily. It did the thing that northern exposure does. But yeah, looking at all the, com in comparison to the other episodes I just mentioned, and uh, I left off Thanksgiving as well. But in comparison to those episodes, this is probably the more forgettable of all of those episodes. Um yeah, just just in in the shadow of the ones that came before, but no, I think we'll have a lot of fun talking about this episode. Uh, just before I get off, uh, the credits are like the little intro. The air date was March eighth, nineteen ninety three. Uh, so where should we begin, Charles? Uh, let's start from the beginning. You know, it's a pretty good cold opening. Yeah, I believe. Yeah, the cold opening is. I think Shelly is leaving the brick, I want to say. I don't really know if we see like the front of the building, but it must be the brick. She's leaving a building at night and walking uh, down the street when she sees a bunch of ballet dancers sort of in this very foggy night light uh, dancing around, uh, complete with like the music. It's very almost dreamlike in a way. And it's almost like in an instant that they disappear. Uh, you know, she runs up to someone who's, outside maybe working on their truck and she's like hey did you see that did you see that that was amazing and the, the guy obviously uh did not see ballet dancers this was something that some sort of vision or something that shelly's seeing yeah it's some sort of hallucination that she's seeing right here um you know obviously the editor is doing a lot of work this episode because you're having us you know go between the footages of having this bombastic event and then like transitioning straight to the ordinary cut which she's not seeing them. Yeah, this episode does that uh, quite often where we sort of see from Shelley's point of view and we see these um, very staged sort of like dancer shots, choreographed shots. And I guess my gripe with, uh, with it's, it's not exactly Shelley's point of view. You know, it's a little more um, staged, I guess the word would be. It doesn't necessarily line up with what she might, it doesn't feel like a point of view shot. But it is a point of view shot because that's what she's seeing. Um, but yeah, I kind of also like that aspect that it is more uh, 
manicured and and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, curated in a way. The frame is just like set up for to to uh, display this this choreography whenever she sees these dancers. Oh yeah, that's a really interesting uh, thing that you pointed out. That if they had wanted to. If they had wanted to communicate this scene more efficiently, they would have done it at a POV shot right there rather than just panning back and we see Shelly and we also see the dancers and it looks more like she's watching like a stage show or something like that rather than us being in tune as an audience member knowing that we're seeing this from Shelly's eyes. Yeah, and I guess the the other side of that too that, that I don't like as much is whenever the sort of hallucinations, whenever they disappear, I feel like they could have made a better sort of like match cut to where... You know, it seems like it seems just very um, when Shelley is in the hallucination and then when she comes out of it, like either before or after, it seems very uh, disconnected, not very, uh, very disjoined. But I think they could have like used more motion or graphic match or something to make it more fluid to seem like, you know, as soon as Shelley turns away, it seems like the dancers that were there are now disappearing and that's oh. what happens. It just feels it just feels a little more disconnected. It doesn't seem so fluid. Who is responsible for that? Is that the director? Uh, yeah, I would assume so. I think that's Adam Arkin. <laughs> Maybe it was just Adam Arkin with the choreo- uh, cinematographer as well. But you know, maybe it was as we're saying. Maybe it is a um, distinct choice for Adam Arkin to to frame these uh, choreography shots in a very staged way, which is I think is pretty cool too. Mm, okay. All right. So we're moving on from there. We are beginning off with another broadcast from Chris sharing his thoughts on K-Bear. One of the interesting things he said during this radio address was that he was talking about losing limbs due to frostbite and introducing like a sort of group therapy for those that have lost their limbs. And what I found interesting on this is that throughout the episode, particularly with scenes with Shelly, there is a lot of mention of body parts. Fingers, legs, um, hands, head, just all sorts of dialogue right there uh, with the body part. And, you know, I, I, I might be like looking into this way too much, but I'm guessing they do that because you wear a wedding ring on your hand. So it's something that's like a physical thing that's on your hand. And when you lose it, like you're losing limbs, then you feel like some sort of a missing identity which is what Shelly feels throughout this entire episode. Yeah, sorry, is it this episode? Yeah, they kind of talk about dreams at some point. And I know like there is a lot of uh, dream interpretation for like when your teeth are falling out. Like I've had that dream before. Things like that, <laughs> like bodily, like lose, like frostbite too, you know, I guess is exactly what you're saying. Like uh, another way of like you're losing part of yourself. So losing a wedding ring, I guess you could connect that to this I also thought that was pretty interesting. There's a Frostbiters support group club, you know, uh, but I didn't go into the analysis of it. But I do really like your your thoughts on that. Uh, oh, wait, we should also mention Chris has short hair in this broadcast. He and, does. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know if you saw it. I shared it with you, Charles, The in the deleted scenes of this. I don't remember what's... I'll remember when we get there, but it's a later scene between Shelly and Chris and uh, in the deleted scenes, it's the exact same scene, except at the very end, Shelly says, oh, you cut your hair, huh? And uh, Chris says, that's right. And that's it. That's the only like part that they deleted from the episode. I guess they didn't really need it, but you know, no one else was talking about it throughout the episode. 
Yeah, uh, we had talked about this before. Uh, I had watched the scene, and he's exactly as you said. They just added on that <laughs> tacked on line right there. I, I am a fan of uh, quote-unquote useless dialogue. I really like it whenever television shows or series just add them in. I think it adds a depth and it makes the characters in the world seem more alive. A lot of people might argue and be like, okay, well, like every single line needs a purpose, and if it's not serving that purpose, then it's dead weight and you're wasting the audience's time. I, I, I would argue against it. I would say that, like, particularly of a television show that's trying to make the town a character, uh, I, I think that it's fine to leave dialogue like that. I don't think that it explicitly needs to have a deeper meaning. It's just nice that the individuals realize that they themselves aren't in a television show and that they can acknowledge each other on like, you know, the small little changes like that. Yeah, I feel like a lot of times people forget that one of the purposes of dialogue is to reveal character. I mean, obviously dialogue most often on the surface uh, dialogue should advance the plot, like mo- keep the story moving forward. So that's what we expect. We expect that every line, even if it's like a obscure or strange or um, uh, what's the word, maybe enigmatic, like it just, you don't really understand why they're saying it. You're like, oh, that'll come into play later. Um, but no, sometimes dialogue doesn't need to move plot at all. It could just reveal character. And even when it's not something super revealing of character, I think, Charles, what you're pointing at is that it just makes it feel a little more real, even if it's, you know, almost non sequitur. I think, I think like the last, the ending of this episode has more, I'm sure a lot of this episode actually has a lot of that kind of dialogue, but I'll try to point it out, uh, through my notes if we get there. But, um, Chris, I think, ends his broadcast with uh, the bulletin that they are going to be unveiling the Whirlwind family totem pole. Now, Whirlwind is, uh, you know, Marilyn's family. And uh, as we heard from the soundbite, Leonard is carving this totem pole for the Whirlwind family. Right. They call this event a, um, like a totem pole raise, right? Oh, yeah. I, I didn't mark it down, but did they have a specific name for it in this episode, I think? Because they are talking about it a lot in the beginning. Like, Joel is asking Ed, like, hey, what's what's going on? Like, what's it going to be like? Yeah, Joel calls it a totem raisin whenever he's talking with Ed at the brick. And I was looking into this, and it turns out that when you raise a totem pole, it's actually rarely done using modern methods, even for poles installed in modern settings. So what happens in a traditional method is that they make a deep trench and one end of the pole is placed at the bottom of the trench, and the other end is supported at an upward angle by a wooden scaffold. And then hundreds of people come out and haul the pole up right into its footing, while the others steady the pole from side ropes and brace it with crossbeams. And then once the pole is upright, the trench is filled with rocks and dirt. And then after the raising is completed, yeah, all the people, you know, the carver, carver's assistants, just people who are raising the totem pole, they get to go to the pot latch, which is exactly the thing that the town of Sicily go to. But yeah, I found that really interesting that y- you're basically uh, strong-arming this totem yeah. pole to stand upright. Yeah, that is interesting. You know, well, it makes me think, like, I guess it's pretty cool that they view, uh, you know, the the raising of the pole itself as maybe uh, a form of art, maybe, I wouldn't say like a lost art, but, you know, like a, a, a tradition. Um, because, you know, you wouldn't carve a totem pole, uh, you know, you carve it very specific ways with your hands. You know, you don't uh, machine... Uh, mechanize it i don't know uh i guess leonard does use a chainsaw <laughs> but uh <laughs> well you know like it's very it's a tradition that was like passed down by hand so i guess they've raised so many totem poles their ancestors have done it in the past just by you know brute force with lots of people so why bring in like a, a what would you call that uh 
like a construction vehicle. What do you call this? Uh, I guess like you know, modern methods. Yeah. Yeah. Why would you yeah. use a, a machine? Yeah. And it's nice to have that community aspect to it because uh, you need like, I would assume like the entire town or like plenty of people to help you lift that. You know, it's all, it, it makes you feel involved in the community in that totem raising. Yeah. I like that when Joel is asking Ed about the totem pole raising, uh, well, Ed says, you know, Ed is cousins with Marilyn. Turns out Ed is also cousins with Dave as well. I think it's something to do with uh, the different clans. Like I think Ed and Dave will learn they are part of the bear clan. Yeah. And Marilyn is part of the Raven clan. They're all related, but just sort of, I guess, different families. And what is it? The last thing that Ed says to Joel or, or that I wanted to point on was uh, it's it's more like a slideshow, he says. I think uh, Joel has like an opinion of what it might be like, like a family gathering or something. Ed says it's more like a slideshow just on a big stick. Yeah, it's a very apt description. I didn't think about that, but he's pretty much right. It is just a slideshow. You just look from uh, up to down on that totem pole. So to finish out that scene, we see that Joel sees Mike and Maggie <laughs> yeah. being together right here, introducing <laughs> the third plot line of the episode. Well, I, I guess that Mike doesn't need the astronaut suit anymore. Yeah, I thought this was an, a hilarious interaction, but you're right. Mike is not wearing the astronaut suit. In fact, he asks Joel to cancel, uh, cancel an order on, I think it was like atomizers or something. Basically something to to show that Mike's like, oh no, I'm feeling fine. I don't need you to uh, to order this for me anymore. But we also learn from this scene, obviously Mike and Maggie, they're like two peas in a pod. They're all over each other. And uh, we learned that they built a fire and played Scrabble. <laughs> Maggie, you know, I guess Mike is saying like, yeah, we built a fire. We played Scrabble. It was wonderful. Maggie like starts shouting over Mike and she's like, who beat who? Who beat who? <laughs> I really love her. Her performance there, it's so, um, what's the word? It's just very over, I don't know. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say over the top. Yeah, very over the top, very like boastful. And uh, she's just very happy to be there, I guess. Mike says, this woman is a seven-letter maniac. And I think uh, before, you know, before Joel has much time to react, I, one of them says something like, do we leave the lasagna in the oven? Is that what they say? I think that just say like, did we leave the oven on? And we're trying to make a uh, let me sh- let me sh- green bean casserole. Green bean casserole. I thought it was funny because again, like Maggie's house is about to burn down again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, should we stick with this plotline to follow it uh, follow through to the end? Sure. Yeah, the Maggie, Mike, Joel triangle. Yeah. So obviously, uh, the scene ends with Joel being a little bit disappointed. And with the next scene, we see that Joel is at the potlatch and he's with the rest of the town. Yeah, you t- you touched on this a little bit before. You know, after they raise the totem pole, they they join at like a potlatch. And, you know, I assumed it was just like, you know, it, it is seems to be just like a potluck. But that word is very specific. Did you find any, do you have anything, to, do you have any info on that, on potlatch? Uh, no, I just thought it was like potluck. Yeah. Is there th- actually. So potlatch, uh. Yeah, I know there's a wiki. So I'm looking up the Wikipedia article. Um, it uh, obviously, you know, potluck. I'm I'm guessing. I don't, I wonder which came first, or if one is commenting on the other. But potlatch, it says, is a gift giving feast practiced by indigenous peoples of the Pacific Northwest coast of Canada and the United States. So obviously, yeah, this is a very uh, regional cultural thing here. 
that uh, I think applies very well. I wonder like how it differs from a potluck or what came first. Why is it called a potlatch? I'm really curious. Let me see if I can dig into this real fast. The word comes from the Chinook jargon, meaning to give away or a gift, originally from a new cha North word. I don't know how to say it. Palak, to make a ceremonial gift in a potlatch. So yeah, I almost want to say that the word potluck maybe came from this. Let me see. Yeah, the word potluck, uh, well, the the origin is uh, disagreed upon, but the two main theories are, uh, you know, the combination of the words pot and luck, and then obviously potlatch from the North American indigenous communal meal. Sorry, <laughs> such a deep dive, but I was really curious because uh, I'd never heard of potlatch and I've gone to many potlucks. Uh, I also wanted to comment that one of the first things in this scene is uh, they're, uh, you know, going over all the dishes on the table and Ruthann says, uh, you should try the shumai. It's really good. And Joel, you know, takes a taste of it. Um, shumai is dumplings, right? Or something kind of like that. Yeah, they're, you can pretty much just call them dumplings. Like they're a form of a Chinese Cantonese dumplings. Yeah. Um, I was surprised that Ruthann knew what shumai were, but not bagels. If you remember in the pilot episode. I still don't believe that. Yeah, that's something that's probably apocryphal. Like it's maybe in the show Bible, but you could erase that. Like Ruthann probably knows what bagels are. <laughs> I think there's also like, uh, what was it? Salmon sticks on the table? Oh, right. Yeah. What did they say about this? I think it was good with some sort of sauce. Yeah, barbecue sauce or something. That's yeah, that was it. Um, salmon sticks. I'm guessing that's like a preserved salmon. Uh, but so about Joel in this scene, you know, he's talking about like, oh, this is great. This reminds me of like the block parties back in New York. Um, but he's he's going to keep expounding on that. But he gets distracted because he sees across the way he can see Maggie all over Mike, you know, the, them kind of lovebirds together. And, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's happens. I almost want to say like in almost every scene with Joel in this episode is he's, he somehow like spots Maggie and Mike together. Right. And that tension carries forward to the next scene involving them, which is where Maggie is delivering, I think, uh, Ivy, Ivy solution. Yeah. I, know I it's, think so. Uh, yeah. It's something with 5% dextrose and water. She's uh, remarking that it's getting heavier and heavier. And Joel is just badgering her because he's really displeased about the way he's being treated. Yeah, I've written down from this scene, um, well, I just have a soundbite. It's a pretty uh, long dialogue between Joel and Maggie, but I think it'll uh, give us a lot to talk about. Let's take a listen. Why should I tell you about my private life? Why? Because I am significant to you. Because we are involved. We have a relationship. We have a relationship? That's right. No, Flashman, we don't have a relationship. We certainly do. No, excuse me. A am I wearing your pin? Or are we going steady? You're not going to get out of it on a technicality, O'Connell. We were an item, and you knew it. And I knew it. Everybody, the whole world knew it. Flashman, there was nothing to know. What would you call the last two and a half years? What would you call sexual relations? Sexual relation one, singular. Well, what would you call taking me home to meet your grandmother? Oh, now you're really out there, Fleischman. Then you have thrown together a few unrelated incidents and you've concocted some sort of romantic fantasy. Wait, 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 what? I, I, I'm sorry. Fantasy? Did you say fantasy? Let, let me just get this straight. You're saying that I, what, I dreamt this up? That, that I just made this up? That there's nothing there? Is that it? That we're just, just? Yes, that we're just, just. No, 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 no. We're not just, just. We are, we are, we are just, 
whatever, and, and, and whatever that is, it implies a certain chemistry and, and an intensity and a passion. Yeah, so don't stand there and try and tell me that we're just just. Because, because we both know better than that. Yeah, initially I was kind of on Maggie's side because I felt that Joel was being unreasonable and that, you know, she's not owed to anyone else. And if she wants to, you know, go on whichever relationship she wants to, she has all the freedom to do that. But now that Joel spelled it out for us, I can kind of see where he's coming from too because I forgot that, you know, Maggie did bring him to her grandmother's. That does have like some weight to it that, you know, maybe she didn't clearly communicate with them to be like, oh, this is just for friends. As If we're led to believe as audience members, Joel was left in the dark on that information just as we were. So you can kind of interpret that as like, Maybe she thinks of him as more than a friend. And, you know, you combine that with the fact that they just were together. So I can see where Joel's state of mind is at. Yeah, I think Joel's being a little rough. I think he's definitely, like, prying into Maggie's business. Uh, But Joel's whole point, uh, which I think he delivers kind of a little too harshly, but his whole point, I think, throughout this and what they are trying to, what they end up trying to figure out is, like, what exactly is there that's there it's not nothing there i think joel feels very uh wounded because he believes that there is something there even if you know even if joel doesn't like maggie if he doesn't love maggie and she doesn't love him back he doesn't need her to say like i love you i've always wanted to be with you that's what the past two and a half years mean i think he just needs some sort of approval or affirmation that uh that there is something going on and they shouldn't ignore that. And I guess Joel, for some reason, feels like he he needed to know, like Maggie, I guess the whole thing is stirred up because Maggie never really told him that she was going out with Mike again. But um, I mean, we've seen in previous episodes where Maggie was like, right in front of Joel, she's like, I love Mike more than Joel. Like, I want Mike, but I, I can't stay with him because I'm going to kill him because of my history with men. Um yeah, there's a lot. I guess it's very complicated. I'm starting to talk myself into circles here, but uh, <laughs> but but it, it, this isn't the only scene. It keeps building. Right. Uh, so we're next led to the scene where it's just Maggie and Mike. Uh, they're working on some botanical gardening right there. <laughs> uh, I don't think there's any flowers in that scene. I think they're just working with like basil or some sort of herb, something like that. Are you telling me that we're closing the flower shop, Charles? Uh, I think for today's episode, I think the flower shop is on... <laughs> Uh, it's gone fishing, which, uh, they need to bring that back. Gone fishing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I never, I, I, I'm not old enough to have lived through that era when you went to the store and there was a sign like physically there to say like gone fishing. But like, I think that's so neat. Yeah. But anyway, in this scene, it's, uh, pretty much Maggie just talking to herself, just talking to a blank wall because Mike's not really contributing much. Well, yeah, she's relating her Joel problems to Mike. And Mike just wants to plant some plants. Like, Mike doesn't want to get involved in this. And he also, I guess we could assume that Mike feels uncomfortable about this. That, you know, he can see that maybe Maggie still harbors some emotion or some feelings. So Mike doesn't really know how to respond. He doesn't want to say the wrong thing and mess it up. He just keeps planting. He doesn't really respond. And uh, Maggie, who you said, you know, she's just kind of talking to herself out loud, decides that she's going to go to Joel and apologize, or I guess to patch things up or something. Yeah, she wants it to be like a win-win. Yeah. Yeah, she wants, yeah, have your cake and eat it too, or, or you know, she wants everything to work out okay. Mike is literally doing nothing. He's like, I, I we complained about this in the last episode where he doesn't have a lot of agency. The writers are starting to ignore him. You know, if you, 
look at this scene with that in mind. Like he literally doesn't, I don't think he hardly says anything in this scene. Maggie just directs everything. Ah, uh, well, l- let's ride these, uh, let's ride these metaphors out just, just <laughs> for the sake of uh, fun and entertainment. I guess you could say that Mike is planting the seeds into Maggie's mind. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's figuratively and literally doing it. And then you brought up that previous analogy. You want your cake and eat it too, because that brings us to the next scene where Maggie literally brings cake to Joel's place. (laughs) That's funny too. Yeah, the cake. uh, Before we get to the cake, uh, yeah, the planting the seeds, I thought maybe like Mike just wants to like plant a relationship and see it grow, but it's in such early stages. uh, You know, it's it's not boding well for the plants. But what uh, what ideas do you think he's trying to plant? And do you think he's orchestrating this whole thing? I mean, the logical part of my brain is saying like, no. <laughs> but if we're just going to have fun with this, oh, like with maybe, maybe Mike, you know. What if he's, he's actually to... the mastermind? <laughs> yeah, you know, he, he's, he, he wants to be with Maggie. He, he sees someone encroaching upon his, his relationship with her. So he's going to try to do whatever it takes to win. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Just about winning or whatever. I remember Maggie said something in this scene referring to Joel. She says, he wanted me, you know, and he lost and you won. You got me. I thought this was kind of interesting that she's almost like, a, you know, making herself like a trophy for these two men. Just, I guess, for for the sake of making a point. I don't know. Yeah, it's really hard to tell where the character ends and the writer begins. <laughs> uh, I, I, we don't we don't have to like really get into this, but it, it's hard to tell because it was written in the '90s of whether or not the writer himself intentionally knew that that was a very sexist remark to make, or yeah. if he did know and he was doing that in the character of Maggie to say that, and you know the fault lies within Maggie and her own interpretation of what you know winning and losing is in in relationships. Right. Yeah. I just thought that'd be interesting to point out. I think you, you hit it, you hit it correctly there. Like who knows if this is just, uh, was intentional to be, a uh, something with Maggie or if that was actually just the writer kind of just putting it out there. Um, but we get to the next scene with the cake, right? That's, she's brought this, uh, cheesecake to Joel's apartment, his cabin, uh, as a sort of a peace offering. Uh, I've got a soundbite here. Basically, to it, it encapsulates most of the conversation. So let's listen to that. Friends, huh? Right. So you want to be friends? <sighs> yes, yes. I'd like that very much. No. No? No. We are definitely not friends, O'Connell. Because, you know, think about what friends do. What do they do? They have dinners and they have conversations and they go to the movies and they help each other move. And So? So... <laughs> Well, friends don't go into barns and tear each other's clothes off in an uncontrolled sexual frenzy and then proceed to go at it in the dirt, now do they? Fleshman, that was the co-host. That was a, an animalistic, wind-induced bit of insanity. It wasn't the wind, O'Connell. What is it with the wind up here? It was you and me. It was sex, which has been there since day one, lurking like, like this hormonal monster in the corner just waiting to pounce. Fleischman, I'm not saying there hasn't been a base animal attraction between the two of us. But so what? I mean, people have disgusting urges all the time. I mean, they have, they have urges to kill one another, and that doesn't mean they go ahead and do it. Look, you can delude yourself all you want, but this thing between us, whatever it might be, is not something that you are going to domesticate by putting in a box and mislabeling it, my little friend. Hey, I do not need to domesticate our relationship. I can beat it to death with a stick. I can make hamburger out of it and eat it for lunch. Fine. And you can top it off with some Erzatz Alaskan cheesecake. Thanks. Goodbye. 
Goodbye. Yeah, it's a bit of a long dialogue there, but I think it's interesting. It starts with Maggie trying to, you know, bring a peace offering. And then by the end, she has withdrawn the offer of uh, the friendship and just decided to form an all-out rivalry. And of course, it's awesome. Uh, I guess you don't get it with the soundbite, but she does uh, slam the cake <laughs> right into Joel before she leaves. I wonder her uh, how many takes did they do with that? Yeah, they probably had a, a number of uh, take a uh, number of cakes, like at least a few cakes that they could use, uh, prop cakes, and then uh, also you would have to also have costume changes. Uh, but with a show like this, you know, the clothes that they're wearing is uh, probably have multiple copies. But yeah, I wonder if that was the first take or not. <laughs> One thing I thought was interesting uh, in the middle there is Joel says. Like you can't domesticate the relationship and put it in a box and label it my friend. Uh, you know, well, it's funny that Joel <laughs> flat out the way Joel says no whenever he says, You want to be friends? And Maggie says, Yes, I would love to. I, I want to be friends. And he just says, No, like it's not going to work like that. But I guess what I was getting at at first is that for Joel, there's definitely something different there. Again, I, I don't think Joel necessarily wants to like Maggie or love Maggie or even that he wants her to like or love him back, but that there is something that needs to be acknowledged that's not just like friends. They, they aren't friends. They're mostly rivals like throughout this whole series. Uh, but there's something that, I don't know, what is it that, that Joel feels like needs to be addressed here? I guess they touch on it at a later scene, but before we even get there, like, what do you think's going on? I think that he's really enraged at the fact that she wants to compartmentalize her feelings for him and compartmentalize is in both manners in that one, she's literally trying to put it in a box and two, she's separating the interpretations between the two characters of what they think being a friend is and what the other one thinks what it means. So I think with Joel's case, he's saying like, I at least want you to acknowledge that there was a potential for a relationship here. And instead you're just taking all that information and dumping it into a box and then leaving it alone. You're just going to pretend it's not there. And that's what's starting off this uh, reaction in Joel. Yeah, maybe he feels that she's like running away from him. Maybe he does really like her. And I guess like as the audience, we're trained to think that, you know, Maggie and Joel, they're made for each other. We want them to be together. So, you know, it, it makes sense for us to be on Joel's side. But uh, I do think, you know, it's a little nasty, uh, some of the, the ways they're treating each other. Specifically, like, why does Joel think he deserves uh, this from Maggie? She's just trying to have her own relationship with Mike, you know? Right. Uh, one thing that was interesting in this thing is that Joel tells Maggie that there's like a hormonal monster waiting to pounce. And I'm going to talk about this later when we go into Shelley's plotline, but I think that that's an obvious reference to their subconscious desire between each other. I'm going to speak more about that uh, because they lay it on pretty thick between the scene with Shelley and Leonard. But yeah, I think that subconscious thought between the two is very important. Interesting. Yeah, the subconscious. Um, well, let's move on to the next scene with Joel and uh, Maggie. I guess he does appear in some other plot lines, but we're mostly focused on the the trajectory of Joel and Mike and Maggie, right? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I don't want to spoil anything, so I'm going to skip through some of these scenes, but uh, say, suffice to say that Joel, you know, throughout this episode, continually sees Maggie and Mike together in public settings, and it seems to bother him a lot. But the next time we really get to see uh, Joel and Maggie is uh, Joel goes to Maggie's house now. 
and uh, and goes to talk to her. Yeah, this is the scene where Joel comes clean and he wants to, you know, he wants to finally communicate on what they are with each other, you know? Maybe we're not a one-night stand. Maybe we're not a relationship. But, you know, let's let's talk it out. Yeah, he's trying to... What's been bothering him is he wants to call it something. He wants to term it. In, in one of those earlier scenes, he says, we're not just just. We're not, you know, we're, we're just, you know, we're just whatever. Like, he can't think of something. Uh, Maggie is just saying, you know, it's just what it is. Like, don't try to describe it or term it. Like, uh, Joel wants to, you know, put his finger on it. And... And so it so it can't like slip away, I guess. But Joel's approach is medical. He uses the analogy warfarin and aspirin. These two drugs uh, are fine on their own, but uh, when you mix them together, they have some nasty interactions. He says uh, they are mutually repellent drugs is what the term is. I've actually never heard of uh, mutually repellent drugs. Maybe that is something in the... Uh, in the medical community, I always just think about like bad, like drug interactions, you know? Yeah. I think that, uh, what, uh, what was it? I think it's like, you can't mix Advil with, uh, it's like ibuprofen with something. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I don't know, but yeah, I'm always, I think anytime I <laughs> take more than one, uh, drug, I'm always worried that there's some crazy interaction. So I have to like search <laughs> it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I think that you actually pointed out something really interesting is that you said that Joel wants to at least properly define the relationship. Uh, and the key word emphasis is properly, not just to throw out whatever term that you want to. He wants to correctly diagnose this. And Maggie wants to leave it ambiguous. So in a way, she would rather it be a subconscious thought rather than be dragged out and become a conscious thought. Ah. But the way that Joel does it, though, is very interesting because instead of actually coming right out and saying what it is, he even does an analogy for it. He steps around it and uses something else that can be used to compare to the original we're going to find that to be a key detail between Marilyn and the Bear Clan. But yeah, for this particular scene, it was just very interesting to see that even he can't outright come out and say what it is. He has to use his medical terminologies in order to properly explain it. Yeah, it's very abstract. These are very abstract uh, ideas that it's kind of like hard to approach directly, but they do um, sort of narrow it down and come up with a term that they both agree to. Uh, I wrote down some of the um, the workshop work that they did. Uh, they they start with incompatibles, affectionate incompatibles, no, enamored incompatibles, no, uh, mutually desirous incompatibles. They like that. There's a smirk. There's a handshake. I can live with that. They just want to recognize this in each other. And uh, there's still some chemistry, obviously, whenever they agree to that. It's, you know, desirous. That's a very, uh, I don't know, that's a, I wouldn't say erotic, but it's a very uh, suggestive word. So they kind of smirk to that. Uh, there's maybe still some romance brewing there, but at least it's, uh, I don't know, feels, it feels, feels like the feud is settled for the moment. Yeah, whenever I hear the word mutually followed by two other words, uh, through a use of word association, I always want to finish those two words with uh, assured destruction. So mutually assured <laughs> destruction. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's a great, mutually is a great word. Mutually desirous, incompatibles. Uh, but yeah, maybe they're going to destroy each other by the end of this uh, series. We'll see. <laughs> 
let's see. Uh, the next time we, that's the, that's Joel, that's the right? Last one. Yeah. That's it with yeah. Joel. Uh, because that's a pretty good, uh, resolution for them, at least for where they're going in this episode. We can settle it there with that terminology. Uh, let's reel it back to the beginning and we can choose Shelly or sort of the, the totem pole, uh, plotline. Oh, let's stick with Shelly. Cool. I like that. I like that choice. I think that's a good place to pick up on. So, uh, we talked about the opening gambit where Shelly sees the ballet dancers. And, uh, the next time we see her, she's like totally messing up the orders in the kitchen. She's working with Dave and she's got like pancakes on a plate and, uh, she starts putting some things together on the plate. And Dave says, wait, is that Red's order? And she says, yeah, it's pancakes and shrimp salad like she's put shrimp salad on the same plate uh dave corrects her it's supposed to be link sausages so we you know i think she even says out loud she says oh man i've been mistaking orders all day today and i think that scene ends with uh hauling pointing out to shelly that she's not wearing shoes she didn't even recognize this but she's not wearing any shoes and we you know we get a shot of i guess her point of view when she looks down uh she's barefoot what do you think that means? Uh, once again, I think it's going back into my thing about body parts missing. So the shoes are missing now from the feet right there. She's very naked without the shoes. Um, it's also a really cool shot of her pants. They're very colorful. <laughs> yeah. They're like It's like rainbow colored pants with uh, random stitches. Let me check this out. Yeah, I definitely like how sometimes Shelly's uh, wardrobe, particularly like her blouses, are usually stitched together of like two different fabrics or two different designs. Super 90s, but let me see this. Yeah, those are some pretty sweet pants. (laughs) Sorry. All right, so the next scene with Shelly is that she has an appointment with Joel, and he's testing her vision, making sure that her eyesight is working because because she's seeing unusual things. And in that eye exam, she suddenly sees Joel start tap dancing. I think it was a, kind of an interesting directorial decision to frame Shelly in the middle whenever she's having this hallucination. Ordinarily, ordinarily, I think you would frame it at the, um, what, what is that method called? Like the three by three method? Whenever you cut the uh, frame. Oh, like you're dividing the uh, the frame into thirds. Yeah. Ordinarily, you place characters at the ends of the thirds, and this one, she's in the dead center to emphasize that she is enthralled with what's going on and that like our eyes should be right on her on the scene. Yeah. And, you know, her point of view shot is very staged. It's very flat against the back wall, and it almost, I feel like it's like a wide lens. The room feels a lot smaller than in any other angle that I've seen that that examination room. But... Yeah, I guess it's just because it's so flat against the wall, the wide lens. But Joel is uh, tap dancing. He's in a completely different outfit, too. I don't know what you call that outfit, but it's. She calls it a monkey suit. A monkey suit is what she calls it. Yeah. I don't know. It's, I mean, it's, he's obviously not wearing like fur or anything, but. Uh, but anyway, uh, I really like uh, the discussion here. I'll play a little bit of the soundbite for what Joel is uh, saying to Shelly. Maybe we should consider a, a psychiatric consultation. Oh, boy. Well, look, I'm not saying that the problem is psychogenic. I just I just want to cover my bases. Oh, boy. Shelly, it's nothing to get alarmed about. It could be it could be nothing more than 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 what? Uh, well, it's a schizoid personality disorder, which is it's really nothing more than um, a little fissuration of the the mental functions. In, in lay terms, it would imply that you're, uh... What? I, I guess it would imply you're, you're kind of nuts. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if, 
in like 2021 if if this is like offensive uh, <laughs> terminology, but uh, I do think it's kind of funny just for the punchline of the scene because Shelly's so worried and Joel is trying to alleviate some of the stress. But at the bottom line, Joel's uh, train of thought is, I, I guess this would mean that Shelly is insane. Yeah, I, I understand they were doing it for the comedy as well. Like y- anybody can tell, like you would not say that to a patient right there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so he, I think he's afraid that it's some sort of psychological, maybe schizophrenia. Uh, maybe is that one of them? I thought one of the interesting things that I learned about schizophrenia, uh, it was told to us by a mutual friend, is that one of the symptoms of it is that you hear voices. And one way that a doctor can tell if you're faking schizophrenia is that they ask you where the voices are coming from. And a lot of times, people think that schizophrenia voices come from inside the head. Like you feel like the voice is within your own head. That's not true at all. If you have schizophrenia, it sounds like the voice is outside your head as if someone is talking next to you. Well, yeah. Yeah, because everyone has like that internal monologue. Like everyone has, everyone, I mean, unless I'm crazy, (laughs) uh, you know, everyone has like voices in their head, you know. Uh, But that is kind of interesting to think about if you were trying to understand what it might be like to suffer from schizophrenia would be to hear voices outside uh, of your head. Right. Well, the next time we see Shelly, I think it's a a somewhat short scene. Uh, Shelly is kind of in the brick, and she she sees another vision. Uh, This time it's like flamenco dancers on the pool table. And, you know, flamenco is, you know, characterized by uh, finger-picking guitar, acoustic guitar, and very um, forceful sort of stomping. Uh, So... (laughs) You can see the pool table is like wobbling because this dancer is slamming her heels into the table. That cannot be good for the pool table. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, didn't we know somebody whose pool table actually collapsed or am I thinking of someone else? Wait, no, I, I don't. Oh, this does sound familiar now, but well, hold on off mic. Were you thinking of Yeah. Did, his, did his pool table? I could have sworn. Wasn't there like a story? Like. It was past high school, too. It was, like, somewhat recent that it's, like, someone was on the pool table and it just collapsed. I feel like I slept on that pool table once. Like, didn't people sleep yeah. on that Yeah, table? people slept on that pool table, which is what caused the problem, I think. I could have sworn that was, like, a thing. But Am what I caused it to that? collapse? Do you know? You just, you can't I, I don't remember. Yeah. I don't, I, maybe it didn't even collapse. Maybe I'm just, like, imagining things. <laughs> but I, I could have sworn that happened. Maybe so. Um... <laughs> I, I can uh we'll bleep out that name like it'll yeah. be fine we don't need to uh <laughs> we can leave that in um well let's would you want to talk about the next uh shelly scene because that was a pretty yeah that's pretty much that all happens all that happens in that scene yeah so we just see that it's escalating so in the next scene we see her taking a visit to chris because chris is pretty much the only qualified one in the town that can talk about this type of stuff though i think that it's like kind of dangerous behavior because if this is actually serious, like if she is clinically uh, suffering from mental illnesses of this degree, I think seeking someone else that is not licensed can yeah. do more harm than good. That's true. But yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's, uh, you know, Shelly says her first course of action, I guess, after Dr. Fleischman was she was going to call KZAB, I'm guessing another radio station, because they used to have a head shrinker on after the farm report is what she says. <laughs> But then she says, but then they went country and yanked him. I don't know what that means, <laughs> went country, but... I, does that mean like went country music? That's what I, I guess, that's probably what she meant. But I just assumed they were like, no, nah, we don't believe in 
medicine and science here. Like, let's yank them out of there. It makes a lot more sense that they just like change to a country music station. But <laughs> yeah, well, right before Shelly goes to talk to Chris, he says uh, he's talking about the uh, feud that's going on between the Bear and Raven clans. He mm. says that we'll keep our collective fingers crossed right there. Yeah. And yeah, uh, again, head shrinker, another use of body parts right there. And Chris talks to Shelly in this scene and he tries to use some old advice from his uh, long past friend, Thule. And he says that with Thule, he always had the thought of saying like, as long as it's not crawling up your leg and it's just on the wall, let him ride. So another body part usage right there. Yeah, Thule is referring to like some bad acid. He's telling Shelly it could be bad acid. Uh, but whether you think it's that or or if it's religious or if it's chemically induced, yeah, it, like just let it ride. Um, I have something sort of embarrassing to admit about the keep your collective fingers crossed. We'll keep our collective fingers crossed. Uh, that quote, that was my mm-hmm. high school yearbook quote <laughs> to Chris Stevens. You know how you get like a quote in the high school yearbook? Wait, why did you pick that one? I don't know. I guess it because it really doesn't um, like in the context of the show. Chris is talking about, um, oh, it actually occurs a little bit later because it hasn't happened yet, but he's talking about um, Shelly remarrying or Shelly and Holly marrying each other. Uh, He says, you know, last time that we tried to do this, you know, they, it didn't pan out. Like they never got married. So this time we'll keep our collective fingers crossed. So in the context of the show, it's not a monumental moment. I guess I just like the way it sounded and the idea of, the collective subconscious was uh, very big for me in high school. Like I had kind of maybe just heard about it from uh, reading about philosophy in high school. And this show really leans into the idea of a collective subconscious. So I don't know. I think that just really resonated. That was my uh, high school quote. Do you, what was, <laughs> what was your high school quote? Can you say it? I didn't it have one. No? Okay. You didn't I, pick one. I, I, I didn't, you didn't get didn't asked ask me. to do it. Yeah. Maybe yeah. I don't, I don't even remember being asked. <laughs> what yeah. the heck? Well, I mean, well, well you had you a really good one for your break wall, at least for uh, AP English. Uh, oh yeah. The one that, uh, Miss McFarlane, our teacher talked about, uh, we were, you know, we were talking about, uh, in our, in our class, like if you would score high enough on the AP exam, the advanced placement exam, you get to paint a brick in the wall. Uh, and these bricks were, we described it already. They're like, uh, what, like maybe six inches by a foot and a half or six inches by a foot. Um, and you could paint that brick any color that you like or any design. I, I quoted uh, Othello. I'm probably going to misquote it now, but it was something like, uh, if after every storm came such calms, may the winds blow till they have wakened death. But I will say how I really screwed up was uh, the one brick that I think was like the most valuable because uh, the, the teacher in her classroom, she had tons of bricks painted over many years. I think she may have started the tradition, but uh, she was teaching calculus. So like to get a brick in that class meant a lot because when you take calculus, you know, you're purely taking it for the advanced placement exam. Like there's no reason a high schooler, I mean, I guess there is a lot of reason why a high schooler should learn calculus, but I've forgotten all of it at this point. It's very difficult. (laughs) So to gain that brick means a lot. And, you know, the kids sitting in that class will spend many hours looking around the walls and reading the bricks. But um, I I screwed up because for that brick, uh, I had just watched the show Death Note and I've never finished Death Note. I'm not even a big fan of Death Note, (laughs) but L is a character in Death Note. So I used the L because that's my name. I just used that. 
hell. I wanted to make something look good. That was so dumb because I keep hitting myself for it because the brick, like the logo for the brick, the restaurant, the brick in uh, Northern Exposure, that would have been the perfect design to put on my brick. Oh yeah, that would have been, oh man, that would have been awesome. And I've like, even like imagined in my head, like, is there a way I could go back and like repaint over it? And, but I don't even think she teaches in the same classroom. I wonder if those bricks are still there or if they're painted over. Oh gosh, I, I didn't know. think about that. I hope they're not painted over. Uh, on a semi-related <laughs> yeah. note, um, you know how they always, uh, interview famous successful people and they always ask him like what led you to this level of success and they always say something from like some esteemed successful work like john steinbeck or um or hemingway uh one of those i i just want them to be like uh obama what what led you to become president of the united states it's like well in the avengers whenever tony stark stopped that meteorite and he said not today that, that really resonated with me and that allowed me to overcome discrimination allowed me to go really far in politics no one ever quotes like those movies like we all look down on them but i i think their lessons are still you know valuable <laughs> That would be awesome. Uh, I've always said that if I could make anything as good as Northern Exposure, I would feel accomplished in life, you know? And I don't even, you know, it's been, I, I used to think, you know, this is the best show ever created. It's certainly, I think it's my favorite show of all time. But, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not silly enough to think like this is, you know, there's no show greater than this. This is the purest, like greatest work. Like this is better than Shakespeare or something. Uh, but no, I, I do think it's, uh, it's a, it's, it would be a great accomplishment just to make something this good. Oh yeah. No, I know exactly how you feel. I feel that a lot of ways whenever I watch a television show that uh, particularly resonates with me, I think like if I could have just create, had in any way contributed to <laughs> the creation of this show, I would die very happy. Um, <laughs> I, I think, I think that thought a lot whenever I see very amazing television shows. And like, like you said, they don't have to be like necessarily objectively great works like Shakespeare yeah. or something. Like if it's just something that I particularly enjoy. Yeah. Something that inspires you, you know, that's exactly what, you know, inspiration is like, I guess, or, or one way. Um, well, let's get back on track with Shelley. Uh, I forgot how we even got here. Uh, oh, the whole, the whole quote. Uh, we did mention preemptively that Shelley and Holling are going to get married in this episode. We'll get there because uh, I think there's still another scene that we see with Shelley before she makes that decision. Like, why would she jump to that? Well, let's see. She's uh, she's approached by Leonard. Right. This is the scene between Shelley and Leonard. It would not be the first scene between them because Leonard has appeared beforehand to give advice to Shelley. I'm pretty sure he gave her the advice to uh, shed her skin. Yeah. Which would uh, later help her in the episode. He was the only one who was able to do so. Yeah, that was, I think, one of my favorite moments of the entire series, the the duck story that uh, Shelley tells about the duckling. That's the episode Wake Up Call in the third season. Fantastic episode. Uh, and that uh, story that Shelley tells is, I mean, I think Shelley, you know, doesn't get a fair shake in a lot of these episodes, but to have that scene, like that's one of the best scenes in the series, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I still remember that scene. Okay, so this is the scene where Leonard recognizes that Shelly is going through something. He says that her eyes are glazed over, her pupils dilate, slight involuntary arithmetic swaying. And he's saying that, you know, she's experiencing the dancers. And he relates it to Freud. He's saying that it's a dream symbol. 
And in order to resolve this, she needs to get married because the dancers are an expression of the subconscious drive and that it takes two to tangle and she needs a partner to dance throughout with her in life. Now for the third episode, let's dive into some pop psychology Jung slash Freud. So in psychoanalytic theory, the subconscious is the obscured part where we have no initial control over. It's not available to a person until they actively attempt to introspect on their inner thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. Sigmund Freud was the first to suggest these concepts with his id, ego, and superego theory. And then Carl Jung branched off those concepts and made some theories of his own. A focal point of psychoanalysis is to attempt to discover and parse meaning from the subconscious. This is easier said than done, because there are a lot of facets that get in the way to obtain the messages that the subconscious is attempting to communicate. The main culprit of sabotaging subconscious messages is conscious thought itself. This is because unveiling subconscious messages are often conflicting or traumatizing to a person when brought to consciousness. Due to the sabotaging nature of the consciousness to subconscious messages, many methods attempt to gain access to the messages in a raw form or bypassing the conscious mind entirely. Another difficulty to gaining meaning from the subconscious is that while conscious thought is often structured and conveyed in easy-to-understand modes, the subconscious does not operate in the same logical manner as our conscious mind. So, because of that, psychoanalysts believe that the subconscious operates via symbolism and metaphor. When introspecting upon the subconscious using psychoanalytic methods, the sensory imagery uncovered are not the literal meaning. A chair is not just a chair. A cry is not just a cry. A smell is not just a smell. They are symbols for the real meaning. So in this episode, Leonard is relating that a snake could symbolize a male's penis. He's saying that the dancers in Shelley's mind are actually her subconscious thoughts of wanting to be married. So these meanings have to be interpreted or analyzed to gain understanding that your conscious mind can understand. And one way of doing so is using dream interpretation which is another psychoanalytic method. Dreams are the subconscious interpretations of our waking and conscious thoughts. Freud believed that dreams was our mind's way to express our inner desires, and thus, dreams are a type of play of the conflict between the superego and id. Dreams are meant to be resolved in order to overcome neurosis. Jung, in contrast, believed that dreams are not a conflict and are raw and direct symbolisms for the subconscious. All that we need to do is to interpret the aspects that are contained within. So this is rather in line with Jung's humanistic view of the psyche. And finally, we have Gestalt therapy, which is a type of psychoanalytic therapy that was created by Fritz Perls. To contrast both Freud and Jung, Perls' model of dream interpretation is that within a dream, every aspect in itself is an individual manifestation of the client's subconscious symbolic message. So in order to understand the dream, a person has to role-play as the individual aspects in the dream. So, I'll give you an example. A woman who previously was a successful business owner was urged to become a stay-at-home mother by her husband. Recently, she's been having dreams of being stuck in a room of darkness where there are only objects are a wooden chair, a carpet made of thin gray fabric, and ceiling light bulb above the chair. Gestalt therapy would suggest that the wooden lounge chair is the woman's sense of being a significant role of stability in the family, but conflicting feelings of being stationary in life. The light bulb is the woman's tending to her children. The carpet is her business owner self who has laid the foundation for this sense of stability. Each object, after realization of symbolism, would discuss with each other in first person to uncover truths. So, I just said a whole bunch of things. But basically, 
Dreams are interpreted differently from each psychologist, but it can be agreed upon that the dreams are subconscious thoughts. So in Leonard's example, he says that dreams have to be resolved because he's mostly residing in the school of Freudian thought, whereas if he was more in the Jung camp, he would say that they need to be interpreted and that there's actually a relationship between them, between the subconscious and the consciousness. Yeah, I guess I'm more in um, Carl Jung's camp, the idea that there is a relationship between the subconscious and the conscious, and we that, that's maybe what we can use to the dreams to interpret. Uh, though I guess maybe... Freud could be right to, you know, maybe there are some, some dreams need to be resolved. They're expressions of a problem that need to be solved. Um, and I guess at least in this episode, that's how it's being applied, right? Uh, at least with Leonard, he says, uh, well, he tells Shelley, obviously you need a partner. Life is a dance. You need a partner for that. Shelley says, if I get hitched to hauling, the dancers will take a hike. And Leonard replies, absolutely or not. So maybe it won't work. <laughs> uh, I liked that little bit there. Right. <laughs> oh, we forgot to mention the the way Leonard, you said he notices just the glazed look in her eyes, the rhythmic swaying. Um, the way they bump into each other is Shelly is like walking down the street with her hands, like covering her peripheral vision, just like doing like blinders. And uh, she bumps into Leonard and she sees hip hop dancers like dancing in the back of I don't know if that's Leonard's truck or not. It's just like a pickup truck that they end up sitting down on. But there's like some hip hop dancers that are dancing there uh, behind Leonard. <laughs> yeah, it's almost as if like Leonard freezes for a second. But I guess we're to believe that he's just watching her because he doesn't like it's kind of odd that he stops there while the dancers are going. But I guess it makes sense. He's like seeing this happen to Shelly. Right. Oh, one more thing about the subconscious thought. Yes. I thought that it played pretty nicely into Joel and Maggie's plotline because I think that the subconscious desire that they had between each other was obviously there. But like I had said previously, it's oftentimes very difficult to take from there all the way up into reality because oftentimes it's very traumatizing. It, it's conflicting with our own conscious thought. So the way they did it was using an analogy. Yeah, to get there. So that is a good way in order to go from A to B. Oftentimes people can use a painting, for example, as a great yeah. way to bring your subconscious thoughts forward. But yeah, uh, I think this whole episode just relies on that. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I definitely like that tie-in with uh, what Joel and Maggie are going through. With Shelly, you know, she knows she has to marry Holling now. She runs to the brick and tells Holling, you know, we've got to get married uh, it's not a romance thing. It's more like being gay for your back after work. Like it's something I need uh, to cure this. She says, if you can't marry me, I'll have to find someone else. If you need more time to think about it, go ahead. And then she immediately looks at her watch. <laughs> but I'm surprised. Holling agrees instantly. He's He says he's honored and proud to be uh, her husband. Yeah, I guess it's some character development from season one whenever he bailed out on her. Uh, They've gone through a lot, I think. Yeah, like the, he had his reasons then for uh, not marrying her, not wanting to be a father. But I think we've seen them work it out together. Mostly where Shelly's like, oh, you could have just told me that. Like that would have made everything better. It doesn't really matter to me if uh, it's this way or that way. I just want to know what's going on with you, you know? But yeah, I guess they're, they kind of work through some things. And, and, and you're right, Holling, I guess, made some sort of leap to get there uh, from season one. Oh, and after Holling agrees, Shelly runs out. She says, I'll go find Chris, see if he can set up the gig for tomorrow. 
And Holling says, tomorrow, she says, well, it's probably too late for tonight. <laughs> like, she needs to get married now. Yeah, it's immediate right there. And because of that immediacy, Holling seeks out his best man, which he finds in Maurice. And he needs to get his blessing, essentially, because he's very uncomfortable marrying Shelley and having him be his best man without, you know, his approval. Yeah, that's a... Um... That's an interesting scene. Uh, I almost thought this maybe could have been like a deleted scene, but I guess they have to address it for like the stands of the show who like go back to season one and would be like, wait, this doesn't make sense. Wouldn't Maurice get angry about this? Like they have to do something about that. You know, obviously Maurice does agree, but kind of begrudgingly. Uh, It's sort of tricky territory, but Holling gives Maurice a money clip as a wedding, uh, like a wedding party gift. But that's about all that happens in that scene, right? Yeah, it's all that happens. Uh, I think it's kind of an insult to give Maurice a money clip because it's kind of implying that he values money above everything else, yeah, including the love that he had for Shelley. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like, yeah, this will make it okay, I guess. But yeah, it's an interesting scene. I guess I would say cut it, but I guess you might need it for uh, to to reconcile with you know Maurice's whole uh, feelings about Shelley in, in previous seasons. And then so Chris on the radio says, you know, Holling and Shelley are getting married at 2 p.m. We'll keep our collective fingers crossed. And at the wedding ceremony, uh, Shelley is, uh, you know, in her wedding gown at the door, greeting everybody as they come in and also rushing them in. Joel again sees Mike and Maggie together here at the wedding, and that seems to disturb him. Shelley goes to close the door, and she sees outside Russian dancers and so she, you know, kind of rushes away from that, closes the door. She she calls for Marilyn to, uh, she says, Marilyn, hit it. I'm coming down. Marilyn's sitting at the piano. She starts playing the uh, bridal, Here Comes the Bride song before she can really get even like a couple notes into it. Uh, Shelly tells her to can it. Okay, let's roll. And that begins the, uh, the, the ceremony. Right. It's a very rushed ceremony. Um, it's almost done as a gag right there because it's so quick. They don't even kiss. Uh, she's just doing it because she wants to solve her dancer problem, which I, I, I'm i a little bit confused on this in that I understand where the interpretation for marriage comes from, but it seems like if you had just affirmed to be married, that would have had the same thing. Like, why is it that this small act that you didn't actually go through all the motions for suddenly becomes the solution because the destination is not all that matters. It's like the journey for it. So it seems like the, I, I would have thought that the dancers would have still been there or at least have came back at the end of the episode is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. It's unclear why this actually worked. Like I guess Leonard was right. It works like that, but um, it doesn't seem, that doesn't seem to make sense. And, and to us, like narratively, it doesn't feel right. Well, I'll say this, like she does, they rush through the ceremony. Uh, they even skip the kiss because Shelley runs to the door to open it again to see if the dancers are still outside. And of course they're gone, but her reaction's interesting. Uh, there's no dialogue or anything, so it's kind of hard to read, but I think I kind of read her reaction as maybe disappointed. Oh, that's really interesting. Do you think that she wanted it to not work? I don't know. I have no clue. Like, uh, I'm not sure what what we're supposed to take out of this because I think there's only one other scene with Shelly, right? Yeah, it's the last scene between Shelly and Holling, which is also a scene I don't understand. Yeah, she just decides not that she doesn't want to wear the the wedding ring, right? Right. And I can understand if she doesn't want to wear the wedding ring due to any 
any number of reasons. But the reason she gives in this episode is that she she still wants to be wanted by men. Yeah. She's like, I feel like, she says, I feel like a skanky old bag when I wear this. Like people's opinion of me will change when they see me with this ring. And I think that's definitely true. But uh, I guess her reasoning saying like she wants to be desired by other men. Uh, I mean, she has, I guess what, maybe what you're saying, Charles, is like she's committed to hauling. Like she doesn't need the affection. She doesn't shouldn't seek the affection of other men. It's sort of a monogamous relationship. But I don't know. Maybe there's something about that. Like a large part of Shelley's personality, her identity is uh, her beauty, you know, and and uh, or just like, you know, her, yeah, I guess her beauty. She's uh, Miss, Miss Northwest Passage. Uh, still, I feel like the the wedding ring is a symbol of being married. And in order to get rid of the dancers, you had to have been married, which is what she's trying to gun for the entire episode. Yeah, so it's like if she takes it off, would the dancers come back? It's kind of unclear how this works. Yeah, it just seems like it's conflicting messages, and it seems like it's like a pseudo-marriage. I, I, just, I just don't like it because I understand why they're doing it. They're just trying to return back to the status quo. They just don't want to have to show her wearing a wedding ring or anything like that. But I, I feel like they could have gave a much better reason for not wearing the wedding ring than this one. And also, it, it, it just feels wrong to me. Strange, I, I don't know. I just wasn't yeah. a fan of it. Yeah, what a strange plot line. Like, why? Who wanted this? Like, why do we have this plot? Uh, I guess, like, you know, it's like, yeah, we really want to see Holling and Shelley get married. But they do it this way. It's almost, like, funny how quick it is. But it just doesn't really have any lasting effects or I don't know. I, I I like this plot line a lot until we get here. I guess it just sort of falls apart. Nothing doesn't doesn't make sense, doesn't deliver a lot. Right. I I agree with you. I, I was kind of on board with what they were trying to go for up until here. And then I, I just felt it was way too out there. Uh, Northern Exposure usually likes to, you know, shoot for the stars, go for odd plot lines. But this one was just a little bit too far for my taste. Right. Well, that's the end of that. Let's reel it back and go all the way through uh, the totem pole plotline, which I think is uh, one of the more interesting ones. I guess we always have the romance subplot. We always have uh, some, something else going on. Would you dare to say that this is like the primary plot? It's either that or Joel, but this might be like I the I would major, say that this is the primary. The A plot, yeah. Uh, so we talked about already, Leonard is uh, carving this totem pole. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead past that. I think we covered everything leading to that. Uh, we got the potlatch. But where we left off was right after the shumai and all that food, uh, they unveil the totem poles, and uh, Dave notices it first. Something is off-putting about the totem pole, and uh, uh, Ed notices it as well. He says, uh-oh, like he can see it, like it's something plain as day. Uh, of course, we as the audience don't know what's going on, but Dave leaves. He's angered, and, and even some people start walking away with him as a uh, Leonard is still talking about the the totem. Uh, but it turns out, I can't remember who says this. Uh, maybe it's Marilyn. She says, the Bear Clan, they can never handle the truth. Right, it's Marilyn. Uh, Maurice comes and asks her, like, what the heck's happening here? And she's saying, like, you know, they just can't handle the truth right here. Yeah, the Bear Clan being, like, Dave and Ed. Like, it looks like Ed doesn't even want to leave, but Dave calls him. He's like, come on, Ed, let's go. And uh, we understand that the Bear Clan and the Raven Clan are all in the same family, but they have very different interpretations of their family history. Uh, something to do with the fish that was included on this totem pole. 
Yeah, so the story goes is that Dave's ancestor, Roland, and Marilyn's ancestor, Harold, used to run an auto repair shop together. And then one day, Harold claims that he found uh, a coffee tin full of money. And with that, he decided to open up a fish cannery business with that money. Roland, however, claims that he embezzled the money. He stole it from him, and that money's rightfully his. And that's where all the problems started from 1934. Yeah, 1934. That's important because uh, it's like Maurice is asking maybe Ed about this. And uh, he's remarking that that was like 60 years ago. He can't believe that this feud has lasted so long uh, because all these people are, you know, they're dead at this point. But yeah, I thought that was interesting. I also love that uh, I like seeing Dave and Marilyn getting all this dialogue here. Like they have this very long argumentative scene where they kind of lay into each other before we even understand really what they're talking about. Uh, it's then that Maurice asks Ed to explain it to him and we get the whole family history. Yeah, it's very neat to see uh, some sort of conflict, like real conflict that seems to run deep between them. Uh, the next scene that we're going to see them with is actually beginning with Chris uh, talking about the consequences of their feud. We see that various stores are shutting down, events are being canceled, you know, just all around the town is coming apart at the seams. And Chris uses an expression saying that blood is thicker than water. But I have always been told that that expression is a little bit wrong. The full expression apparently is the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb which means the opposite of what that other <laughs> meaning was saying. It's saying wow. that your friends are more valuable than those of your birth. Interesting. Uh, but I could not find any uh, support for that claim. It comes from these two authors. So again, that one's kind of left in the dark of who originally said what and what the original meaning was. I, I find those really fascinating. I had just learned one recently uh, about Voltaire. There's a famous one that's attributed to him that says, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Oftentimes it's attributed to Voltaire, but it's actually said by Evelyn Beatrice Hall, who wrote the phrase as a good description of what Voltaire would be like in her biography, The Friends of Voltaire. But now we all think that Voltaire said it. Though if I may add an addendum to it, I think that while that might be a pretty saying, uh, you can't defend anything if you are dead, though. <laughs> yeah. That also reminds me of, like, the. there's a quote that's misattributed to Kurt Vonnegut, the one about sunscreen. It's like, if I could offer you any tip for the future, uh, it's to wear always wear sunscreen. It's like a commencement speech. Uh, that the, the greatest commencement speech ever given, but it wasn't Kurt Vonnegut. That's, what is that supposed to mean? <laughs> uh, so... It comes from uh, a piece known, um, it's called Advice Like Youth, Probably Just Wasted on the Young, uh, also known as Wear Sunscreen. It was an essay written as a hypothetical commencement speech by a columnist, Mary Schmitch, originally published in the Chicago Tribune. Sorry, I'm reading Wikipedia, obviously. But uh, have, you, have you heard this before? Have you listened to this speech before? No, I've never heard of that at all. It's really good. It's like it gives you a lot of uh, life advice. It's like a commencement speech, but the whole uh, thing is in the end, it's like, you know, this is probably bad advice that I'm giving you. Like it, maybe it won't work out for you. Like none of this is promised. But the one thing I can tell you is that 
you should wear sunscreen because you can get skin cancer. If you like, if you don't wear sunscreen, you'll get skin cancer. So we know that it's proven that it prevents skin cancer. So wear sunscreen. Mm, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'll send you. Actually, it's funny too. Uh, Boz Lerman made like a music video about this. It's like a spoken word song, um, but it's you know he used like the spoken word of this uh, essay and put some music behind it and made like a I guess a music video. Uh, about it. It's called Everybody's Free, parentheses, to wear sunscreen. Uh, the sunscreen song, uh, which I'll, I'll send to you. You should check that out if you haven't If you haven't heard the... Who, who was the original speaker of that quote? Uh, Mary Schmitch. That was the, uh, the... The essay was originally written by Mary Schmitch in oh. 1997. I don't know why it's misattributed to Vonnegut. Uh, it was an urban legend, I guess. But yeah, interesting. Uh, sorry. What were we talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so we're talking about the conflict between the bear and the ravens. And in order to settle this, Chris wants to talk to Leonard personally and say, like, you know, I took a look at that totem pole myself. Wouldn't take that much effort to, you know, scrub off that fish. Oh, yeah. he's. This is the part where he's, like, trying to ask Leonard to change his art, which, uh, oh, before we move on to this, uh, when you're talking about the blood is thicker than water, Chris talks about his own family feud, uh, because we know he has like a history of like the, I think it's like the Millers and the Stevenses are always fighting back in Virginia. Uh, is it West Virginia or Virginia? Where's Chris from? West Virginia. West Virginia. Thank you. I think I said Virginia in the last episode. But uh, anyway, he talks about uh, one of his relatives shooting another one for busting up his still and peeing in his corn mash. That's... <laughs> Such a dirty deed, just like going and peeing someone's, you're working on this corn mash that you've got to like uh, distill and whatever ferment and someone comes and pees in it. <laughs> that was like the the worst, best insult. But moving on, sorry, I just wanted to fit that in there. Uh, he does tell Leonard to remove the fish. And I like that Leonard says, I don't really see it as a matter of historical accuracy. This is a matter of art. You know, this is my artistic vision, regardless of the historical meaning, like I wanted it to turn out this way. I don't care what anyone interprets from this. Like this is my, you know, Leonard's defending himself as uh, the author of this piece. Yeah. And in some way, I can definitely see where he's coming from. Uh, I think that people were mocking Sorkin for his work in the social network. And they were saying like, oh, that's not how it actually went. Uh, you know, this, this, and this happened. And then Sorkin had to come out and be like, it's a work of fiction. And I just <laughs> wanted to have fun with it. Like, couldn't yeah. make it 100% real. Uh, Chris states a bunch of other examples agreeing with them, saying like, oh, you're right. You know, what happens if like, they had removed this concerto from this piece or if Balzac was wearing a three-piece suit? Uh, What was really interesting, though, is that when Balzac was made, it actually was rejected by a lot of people. (laughs) Uh, They they did not like it. (laughs) But uh, thankfully, there was uh, some strong artist of his time that did support it. So ultimately, in the end, he finally got the recognition he wanted but yeah initially they didn't even like that either so who knows what would have happened with the three-piece suit that's awesome uh he also mentions uh picnic in the park i've already forgotten the name of the artist the painter there but it's oh it's surat surat it's the uh one with all the dots you know uh he says you take one dot out of that painting you lose an eye a nose a smile like there's so much i guess it just says like every little piece of this work of art is substantial and it matters to the 
to the hole. That's why Leonard does not want to uh, to remove the fish. But perhaps there's another solution. Let's see. Before we get there, uh, we do see some more feuding between the bears and the ravens. Like, well, what happens is we see Dave, like he doesn't want to serve a table because they're ravens. And Hauling has to remind him that, no, those are customers. Don't forget that. Uh, and later, Dave is like outside the brick carrying some bags. He's got like a sack of potatoes and all the potatoes uh, roll out. And he's got to go, you know, get on his knees and pick them up. And Marilyn walks by him and she gives him eye contact and just ignores him. and just like walks out, like, you know, walks out on him, which is fine because he's been treating her terribly. But uh, I think earlier in the episode, everyone's talking so highly about the whirlwinds, you know, like, uh, I actually can't remember. I think it's maybe Leonard who talks about, might be Dave, but they're like, you know, they would give you the shirt off their back or, or something like that. But Marilyn's, you know, not, not acting that way. Right. Marilyn's cold blooded in this episode. Not even helping him. <laughs> I think she steps on the potatoes. Oh, wow. That's messed up. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember if she did, but yeah, I could so, see it. Go ahead. That brings us to the next scene, which is them in the office, them being Marilyn and Ed. Ed's here to get his allergy boosters right here um, so that he doesn't suffer from any springtime seasonal allergies. But they're still not on talking terms, though I like that Ed is the most uncomfortable in this situation because I think even he realizes the ludicrousy and the, um, the, the craziness that's going on in this place. Like he's just going yeah. along with the bear clan because that's because that's what the rest of the people want him to do, and he just doesn't want to step out of line. But ultimately, Ed wants them to be, you know, they want him to resolve this issue. He might be the only one that wants to find uh, a compromise. Yeah, yeah, he seems to be caught in the middle here, and uh, he just wants an allergy shot. And Marilyn, uh... <laughs> sorry. Mm -hmm. So that's funny. I'm talking about allergy shots. I just like, <laughs> he just wants an allergy shot and Marilyn is sort of like ignoring him. She's not going to get Joel. Uh, she says like, maybe she says Joel's busy. I can't remember, but uh, she's, she's not tending to Ed's needs. And uh, Joel is like running around the office. He's like looking for a tie, I guess, for the, for the wedding. And, I think it's funny. Joel's like, oh, I see you guys patch things up. That's nice. That's that's great. It's, it's always good to see that. He's like so oblivious. But Marilyn is like <laughs> obviously stonewalling Ed. Uh, and the scene ends with just like kind of Ed still sitting there, kind of waiting. He should have said something to Joel, but I guess he doesn't. Yeah. Well, Ed continues to try to fight the good fight because we next see him trying to approach Leonard. He's got a new project in his place. Got a giant cedar tree right there. And Ed tells him that, you know, breaking point is about to be achieved because the Sunday brunch is being canceled and that has never happened. They always have this Sunday brunch right here. And funnily enough, in order for Ed to get his point across, he also uses another work of art. He uses the Godfather in order to try to explain the situation. So in this analogy Ed is using, he's saying that Don Carleone was able to overcome his desire for revenge uh, after seeing his son get murdered and try to unite the five families. He said, like, enough is enough. And the scene ends with Leonard saying, like, I, I think it just says, like, yeah, I've seen that scene. I have them on uh, I have them on tape, you know. Yeah, he's almost like offended. He's like, of course I've seen Godfather. <laughs> uh, he's he like quotes it basta, which I think is probably Italian for enough. I wrote down, stand back, watch your eyes. Doesn't he like start 
chainsawing uh, the the piece of cedar wood or something. Yeah, yeah. He starts he starts carving it up. Nice, uh, because we'll see as that's unveiled uh, later in the episode. A second totem pole. Well, actually, let's see. I've got some stuff written down here. Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ, Boycott of Universal Studios. Do you remember what that was about? Oh, yeah. He's, he's saying that like like works of art can be really divisive and mm. can lead to like boycotts and protests and stuff like that, which is obviously what his totem pole has been doing. Yeah. And uh, it turns out uh, Leonard says like, you know, I was asked if there was anything I could do without sacrificing my artistic principles. And he unveils the second totem pole, exactly the same, but there's no fish crest in this one. Uh, you can have it both ways, I guess. You know, you get both pieces, which is, I think that's pretty nice. You know, I don't know. It's, uh, it seems like a, that's never going to be a good solution, but somehow I think it is. It, it works here. Yeah, he builds two almost exactly identical totem poles right there, which I think is kind of analogous to Joel and Maggie's relationship. I was hinting at it earlier in the podcast where I was saying that they themselves were kind of creating a almost pseudo relationship of being there but not being there. And it's kind of what this totem pole is also being. Like it's it's almost like two different realities that are trying to exist within mm. one reality right here. Yeah. Which I thought was, you know, something really neat that the show was doing right there. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's like they contradict each other, but they're both still there, which is uh, an interesting way to look at it. But uh, this does seem to alleviate the tensions. Everyone is happy. Dave sees the totem and, uh, you know, he, he approaches Marilyn. And uh, I really like the ending of this episode. This is the end of the episode. Uh, I really like what Dave says uh, as he approaches Marilyn. You know, I'd uh, forgotten about your parents' silver wedding anniversary. You brought that polka band in from Montreal. Everybody danced all night. We had a real good time. Yeah. I think I'll have a cup of coffee. Sounds good. Me too. Yeah, I like that a lot. The silver wedding anniversary. I can't tell if this is just something that uh, Dave is remembering about, like how it used to be when they, whenever they were, you know, more friendly. Or he actually, the actor actually looks back at the totem pole as he's speaking. So I wonder if the totem pole tells the story of the silver wedding anniversary oh. somewhere on there. Maybe not, but I, I really like it as kind of what you're saying at the beginning of our podcast. Sort of these non sequitur, just like throwaway lines that seem to maybe they reveal character or they just make make it feel a little more real, you know, that this these are people that actually did hang out and dance together at this wedding anniversary. But it's so nice because the, that ending is like, you know, I think I'll have a cup of coffee. It's not explicitly an invitation, but it's understood that it's like, yeah, let's go grab some coffee. That sounds nice. Yeah, it's just such a... Uh, it's a it's a very nuanced way of writing. I think it's not very direct. It's not very plain spoken, but you really sell uh, a meaning that is, I think, more powerful than if you just said, "I'm sorry, let's go grab a cup of coffee." You know, right? No, no, no. You're exactly correct. I think that that's a much better way of handling this plotline compared to the Shelley and Holling plotline right there. Uh, so, kudos to the writer. I will have to say, though, it was kind of odd that Leonard got inspiration from the Fairness Doctrine. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the Fairness Doctrine was something that the United States Federal Communications Commission, FCC, introduced in 1949. And it was a policy that required the holders of broadcast licenses to both present controversial issues of public importance and do so in a manner that was honest, equitable, and balanced. 
Now, you have to understand that in 1949, there wasn't a whole lot of sources of information. There wasn't the internet. You often got your news from the local newspaper. So whenever the television came about, it was, you know, groundbreaking that this would even be here to introduce the news to the entire nation. So that is what the world was back in 1949. And in 1987, the FCC eliminated that policy. Now, a lot of people say like, oh, they shouldn't have done that. Now you can look at today's news and it's you know really wacky. You get people that are just full on on one lean and they don't give the other side a chance to speak. Well, the thing is, is that the fairness doctrine does not apply to the internet. So news sites that operate online aren't beholden to it. It also hits both ways. If you would have kept the fairness doctrine, then news would have to cover the crackpot theories as well. So, you know, it's not all glamour thinking about the fairness doctrine as being the solution to everything. Though I will concede that it might have led to what we have today in the media. But I think it's unfair to say that, like, if you bring it back, it will fix all of the problems. Yeah, I totally forgot Leonard mentions like I got inspiration from the fairness doctrine. That's why I've decided to make two. But uh, yeah, that I, I had listened to an episode of the Daily Podcast where they talk about Rush Limbaugh, uh, you know, the shock jock. Uh, and uh, they talked about the fairness doctrine. And when it was sort of eliminated, it allowed for that sort of uh, news representation on, on uh, the air, like on radio. But I guess you're right. It never applied to the internet. So, uh, you know, maybe we would have ended up with, uh, you know, Alex Jones or something, <laughs> something still <laughs> with, uh, with the internet. But yeah, that, that is a very interesting bit of history. I, I think that's cool. If you ever want to paint like a villain in people working in television, the FCC makes for a very uh, <laughs> yeah. prop, even though I disagree with it sometimes. I actually think that like the FCC can be an uh, instrument of good. <laughs> I have yet to see a television show that has presented it in a very positive manner, though. Like, yeah. Every single time, it's always doing with like, ah, oh, they're being such drags on artists. It's kind of like how accountants get such a bad rap as well. <laughs> you know, we were talking about that accountants. But yeah, that as we said, that's the end of the episode. Uh, I did want to touch on a couple bonus uh, sequences. They're very short. We talked about the uh, <laughs> when Shelly tells Chris, so you cut your hair. That's right. Uh, there is a scene, uh, or an extension of a scene where Leonard says that, um, he likes sculpting. He likes art because it can be more freeing than medicine. I guess there are certain, uh, rules or certain patterns that you follow in medicine. Uh, whereas art, he can be completely free, I guess. Yeah. I saw that scene and he is correct to a degree. I, I would agree with him in some way because in art, uh, at least in my opinion, if, in order to make like really groundbreaking ones, you have to understand the rules first. And then once you understand the rules of the medium, then you can break them and create something that's really unique. That's applied to everything, writing, movies, sculpting, whatever, whatever you have. You always have to understand the fundamental thing. And then once you understand it, you can either still follow through or you can break it and have fun and be quote unquote free. Whereas in medicine, uh, you absolutely cannot do that. You can't be like, oh man, I understand how uh, this interaction works. Let's mix it up. Like, you gotta, you gotta just improve upon that. You know, learn from science. So yeah, he is. You know, that's kind of a neat take that he has. Yeah, I think when you're talking about, I did want to talk about art for a second. Um, you learn the rules so, just so you can break them and make something new. Uh, that line of thought is like. 
you know, you build up your skill, you learn these rules. Uh, and then the reason why breaking the rules is so nice is it's sort of like an inversion. It's like, of course we know this is how it works, but what if you took these rules and reshaped them in this way. That's why they're always like, oh, you're, you, these young artists, they just, you know, they don't have any foundation. Like they're, you know, you got to learn the rules to break them. But I also will say, I think you can break the rules without learning them. I think there is art that is so fresh and unique. It comes from a place that has no rules, you know, like there are no rules there for you to learn or to break. And I think people... Some people can be kind of curmudgeons and say, you got to learn the rules first and then you break them. But uh, no, I think the reason why you like learning the rules is because you understand how they work and you want to do something different too. Mm. It's like that argument of saying like, uh, who, who is better, like the Juilliard trained musician or like that extremely talented saxophone player you just picked off the street <laughs> yeah. and just like learned it by himself. Exactly, you know, yeah. Which one is more talented? And maybe there's a different type of artistry, but I think it's, you know, it can be equal. Uh, maybe, maybe it's not equal. Maybe one person is better, but you know, there, there could be an equal there in different routes. Uh, and then let's see, the last little bit of deleted scene is they cut a whole... Um, dancing sequence. Uh, Shelly sees like a couple that's dancing. They're like spotlighted in the brick. It looks like they're kind of like dressed for this grand ball, like ballroom dancing style. Uh, I can see, I guess, why they would cut this. It seems like it was, a, uh, you know, it seems like it would be worth it to keep there. Like they probably spent a lot of time getting this uh, scenario set up. But uh, I can see like there's another scene that's really short with Shelly where she sees like the people dancing on the pool table and that's purely the only thing that happens in that scene. So this is just a repeat of that same sort of beat, but in a different uh, color maybe, you know, this uh, different uh, style of music, style of dance. Uh, though I could say, I don't know, maybe they should have cut the Maurice and Holling best man scene out and kept this one in. Maybe not. I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, <laughs> uh, I, I agree with you replacing the... Maurice and Holling scene. I don't know about <laughs> replacing it with this scene, though. Yeah, okay, you're probably right. You don't want to like beat a dead horse and keep hitting the same beat again and again. So, well, that does it for our analysis, Charles. Let's move on to our next phase of the podcast. We said we introduce the show Northern Exposure to someone new for each episode, and this episode we've invited on Kristen. Kristen has never seen the show before. I think she mentions you'll hear. Uh, she mentions that her mom had liked the show. So maybe she has a little bit of context through her mother. But um, I, I'm really interested to see sort of like the outside perspective from present day, you know, 2021, and just to see if the show kind of stands up on its own. Now, Kristen, I know through a mutual friend, uh, another guest on the podcast, you know, uh, our friend Brody Charles, who has been on the podcast before, who has been on the Patreon too. Uh, that's a great episode. and. Um, Kristen, I also know because we play Dungeons and Dragons together. I actually mentioned that in, I think, our upcoming or our latest Patreon episode that I played Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, it's the episode where we're talking about the Jungian archetypes. And, uh, well, uh, Kristen and I have played Dungeons and Dragons uh, for quite a while now, I guess. Um, it's been probably since the beginning of quarantine, though I guess I've known Kristen since before that. Uh, regardless... I'm very excited to hear Kristen's thoughts on this episode. Hi, this is Kristen. I'm talking about um, Northern Exposure Season 4, Episode 19, Family Feud. 
So I, I came into this with no context at all. My only context was that one time my mom mentioned that she used to watch it and she thought Rob Morrow was really cute on it. Um, I knew it was set in Alaska, but that was it. Um, so this was a really weird episode to start with because it opens with those mysterious dancers. Um, and I was like, it's just like a Twin Peaks situation that I've gotten myself into. Uh, and that was very confusing. Overall, I really liked the show. I thought it was fun. It was cute. Um, there were some things I had problems with, um, and I probably wouldn't watch another episode just because this isn't really my style of show, um, but it was really fun to watch. It clearly relies on sort of knowing the history of the town, and so it was a little bit of a struggle to piece together like all of the back histories and the past relationships, um, but I did think that it was clear enough that you know if you were just flipping the channels and you found the show, you would be able to pick it up. And it was especially interesting in this one because all of the arcs were about past relationships. Um, my least favorite of the arcs was the dancers arc. At first I thought it was going to be sort of like a, oh, maybe this show is like kind of like house where it's a medical mystery that the doctor has to solve. Um, and then they introduced that whole, you have to get married angle. And that was really uncomfortable. Um, I really didn't like that relationship. Maybe there's like context for it. Um, but just from that one episode, really uncomfortable that this like 18 year old looking girl has to get married and she has to choose between these two men who look like they're in their sixties and could be her dad. And that was, it was just really uncomfortable. Um, didn't like that again, hopefully there's context, but from this episode seemed really weird. I did like the other arc a little bit more. Um, the, past relationship arc with um, the doctor and uh, the girl that he had slept with. Um, and that was an interesting arc because with the dancers, I started out liking it and then didn't. And with that one, I started out not liking it because I was like, oh, this is just going to be a traditional love triangle arc. And then by the end of it, I really liked the way they handled it. Um, and I thought their final conversation was really mature and interesting and like a good way to resolve an arc like that. I also really liked Chekhov's cake. Uh, as soon as I saw the whipped cream on that cake, I was like, please end up in someone's face. And I was not disappointed. The main arc of the show, the, the titular arc, the family feud was definitely my favorite. From just watching this episode, it does see, it seemed to me like Chris and his radio show were kind of the heart of the show. And so that was sort of, especially with this being like the main arc and he was kind of the focus of that. And I really loved his and Leonard's conversations um, because Leonard was definitely one of my favorite characters, setting aside his dubious mental health advice. Um, but I loved their discussions about art and I loved the resolution, how Ed came in and was like, let's figure out a way to fix this so that we can all be friends again. And the way that they resolved it was really clever. Um, and I really liked that part of the show. So yeah, overall, I really liked it. Um, definitely some parts that were a little uncomfortable and in general, I'm just not like, I don't like watching that type of show. Um, so I was surprised I liked it as much as I did. Um, but definitely, you know, probably wouldn't watch another episode, but yeah, so that was what I thought about the show and, um, a situation where I felt kind of stuck and trapped was when I was in kindergarten, I had to stay with my grandmother for a little while. Um, and she, while I was there had to counsel at a Girl Scout camp so I had to tag along with her um, and I didn't want to be there. I didn't know anybody. They were all in troops together and, you know, didn't know me. But the troop of fifth graders that my grandmother was supervising kind of adopted me as one of their own or maybe their mascot. 
Um, and I ended up having an incredible weekend. And the memories from that weekend are still some of my most vivid from childhood. Like I, I still remember the songs that they taught me and I still have like can picture this guy from when we slept outside of our cabin one night. So definitely a situation where I felt, you know, kind of stuck and not in a place I didn't want to be and then ended up having the time of my life. <laughs> All right. Thanks for having me. Bye. Hey, quick punch in. I'm sorry for this, but there was a little bit of a technical malfunction on my end, so it's going to sound like I'm speaking from the belly of a cavern in this next guest segment. Again, I apologize for our listeners. All right, that was Kristen with her thoughts on the episode. A uh, lot of respect for her for saying that she would not watch another episode. It is not her style <laughs> of show. Uh, I've always uh, went with the rule of thumb where you watch three episodes. And by Mm. the third episode, you'll know if you like the show or if you want to drop the show. But, hey, if you can do it in one go, you know, more power to you. Yeah, that's a good rule of thumb. I'll say I probably should do that, though I've oftentimes I've checked out of a show after one episode. But I think, you know, even with some of your favorite shows, if you want to introduce it to someone else, you might say, oh, the pilot's not the best episode. Or, you know, I feel like that comes with many shows where you're like, you know, it takes a while to get into it, but once it starts rolling, you're going to love it. And I think Northern Exposure definitely is one of those kinds of shows. You know, I think Kristen even mentions that, like, uh, she said it might be hard for a new audience member to start the show. Um, she said something to that effect. And of course we're in season four. So like at this point, if you're not really familiar, there's a lot of, uh, threads that have been continuing for a long time. Though she did say it's easy enough to pick up, you know, if you're just flipping through channels. But I guess, you know, what I inferred from her judgment is probably more enjoyable for like someone who has been watching it and understands how these storylines are becoming more and more complex and we get to know more and more about the characters. I guess that's what reruns are for, you know, but but yeah. Yeah, I like that she knew that this wasn't her type of show, but she didn't necessarily think that it was a bad show. Uh, I've had that a lot of times myself, where uh, some sort of um, zeitgeist show that's in everyone's mind, like I'll watch one episode, and then I'll be like, oh, this isn't for me. I'm not I'm not saying it, it's bad, I'm not disparaging it, but like I know that I'm not going to have a good time watching it. So yeah, Christian is able to realize that, uh, but you know, I'm, I'm already good props to her for that. Yeah. So Kristen says that her least favorite parts were the dancers. And, you know, now that I think about it, I think that she has a point because for somebody that doesn't know anything about the show and you're just getting into it in medias res, it would be strange to have this message be like, you have to get married. Uh, You're only a complete person once you get married. It's very outdated. Uh, It's like patriarchal. Uh, It's really strange. So, yeah, for some reason, uh, it didn't occur to me because I, I, I knew who Shelly was and I understood why she was trying to get married. But yeah, no, it is uh, definitely odd. Yeah. And and there's that thing like, you know, Kristen says it's sort of mysterious dancers in the beginning. Is this Twin Peaks? You know, another guest comparing this to Twin Peaks, which obviously they, they kind of ran concurrently around the same time. Very similar shows in, in a lot of ways. But um, I think for a fan of the show, they're expecting some sort of weird, magical realism, supernatural element. So watching this episode for a fan, they would be like, oh, cool, this is like the weird, magical, spiritual part of the episode. So it checks that box. I don't know if we said this, Charles, but 
I don't know if it was this episode or the last one or something recently. A lot of these episodes lately have been like, it's a very Northern Exposure-ish episode. Like it checks the boxes for what you might expect for the for the TV series. Maybe not our favorite episodes of this season yet, but not bad episodes. Um, but yeah, this particular plot line and also what you were saying, just sort of this, uh, what Kristen says, the uncomfortable marriage thing. Uh, and without the context for Shelley and Holling, even with the context, it's a little odd, but this is uh, from the very first episode of the show. There is this, uh, what they term a May-December romance, um, what they come to term that, like, you know, very young Shelly. I think Kristen says she looks like she's 18 years old. I think she's supposed to be like, I actually can't remember. Is she like 20? Uh, or? She's somewhere around there. I feel like she's older than Ed, but still quite young. And Holling is uh, now 63, maybe 64 at this point. Um, so that's always an odd thing. And when I think about Shelley and Holling, I like to imagine, or I like to believe that they handle this relationship with grace, but a lot of times they don't, they usually play it up for jokes. It's pretty strange. I don't think it's super effective the majority of times, but then there are some really great moments where Shelly can sometimes be my least favorite character or like the best character in the show. It's kind of a wild card. Um, this episode was fine with her, but again, I think uh, we talked about this, Charles. Like, I liked where the storyline began, but not where it ended up. The whole marriage thing, and then it kind of doesn't make sense that the dancers just magically go away, and now that Shelly takes her ring off, does that mean the dancers will come back, but they don't? I don't understand the rules, you know? Yeah, it's a really messy uh, plot line, especially for its resolution right there. Because you're almost led to believe that the dancers will still come back mm. because it, it looks like she earned her um, resolution too easily. But yeah. uh, apparently that was it. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, one story arc that Kristen did like, I think, in fact, her favorite arc was like the family feud, the titular family feud. She mentions Leonard is probably one of her favorite characters, maybe her favorite. Uh, I'm just going to infer. Leonard's a great character, and and uh, I believe this is his second appearance in the series proper. He appeared in season three in a fantastic episode, uh, Wake Up Call, which we talked about earlier. And uh, yeah, I love I love Leonard. I love his conversations with Chris. Oh, I thought it was funny. Kristen says, despite his dubious mental health advice, uh, he's still a great character. <laughs> I like her uh, comment about Chekhov's cake, you know. Uh, Lee, do you know what Chekhov's gun is? Right, yeah. Chekhov's gun is like if you see a gun in the first act, I think it's supposed to be like in the first act, though you could apply it any time. Like if you see this item, it's probably going to come into play. Something we talked about, Charles, before where it's like every element of the plot, you know, some people's approach might be that every element has to be paid off or it's there for a reason. And... uh particularly with this cake, it does, like Kristen says, it does have a lot of whipped cream. Like it definitely seems like that is a, uh, in uh, a very specific cake that Maggie chose. And uh, of course there is a, there is a pieing to the face. Oh, and about that plot line, uh, Kristen says she at first disliked the love triangle thing. It seemed maybe like uh, cliche or overdone, uh, but she really appreciated like the maturity um, in the closure, like sort of the, um, the resolution of that, how they've come to terms, uh, they've termed their relationship. Uh, and it's, yeah, I think it, it feels pretty toxic 
especially I imagine if you watch this out of context, like the way Joel is treating Maggie up front. But it's nice that it is a very mature agreement in the end. It's very healthy, I think. Yeah, they uh, coined their own term and mutually desirous incompatibles was the uh, term that they coined. Yeah. And finally, Kristen was answering the question of saying that, you know, whenever she was a kindergartner, she had to tag along with her grandmother to her Girl Scout meeting. I got to say, that's a really adorable story right there. Um, I can visualize it in my head because I've never been to summer camp and I've always <laughs> imagined what summer camp is like. Yeah, I've been to summer camp and this sounds like a great, incredible weekend for any for any age. But of course, probably definitely could be scary for a kindergartner. You know, I remember when I was a kid, I felt like, you know, like fifth graders. I thought they were like adults. You know, I thought they were, you know, anyone older than me felt so much older. And I was just pretty, I mean, I was pretty timid, but um, so so I was kind of scared of my friend's older siblings. Um, oh, by the way, the question is like, you know, were you ever in an uncomfortable situation that, uh, made you change for the better? We're kind of thinking of like, you know, Dr. Joel Fleischman in Alaska. So yeah, I guess, what can we say? I'm, maybe I'm inferring, I'm, maybe I'm putting words in Kristen's mouth, but is it like, you know, she maybe overcome some sort of, uh, this fear or maybe learn to not be afraid of the unknown, but. I don't know, step out of your comfort zone, I think is a good blanket for that. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, anything that's not your home or school is definitely out of your comfort zone as a kindergartner. So to have to go and see new people like that, that's, you know, incredibly frightening experience right there. I like how she said she slept outside in the sky, uh, presumably underneath the night sky. I don't know if she clarified if it was like, you know, day sky or night sky, but <laughs> I'm imagining it's night sky with the stars. Yeah. And uh, props to those fifth graders that she said they sort of like adopted her and maybe she was their mascot in a way, like their team mascot. But yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun being able to. And also when you're a kid, you might be uncomfortable at first meeting older kids, but if they accept you, you feel so cool. I imagine, you know, they feel like you're hanging out with the cool kids, the, <laughs> you know, the big kid table. Um, okay. Well, thank you so much, Kristen for your thoughts on this episode. Thank you for taking the time to watch the episode and, and uh, give us your thoughts. And uh, we really appreciated uh, your perspective. I think, uh, I think we had a lot to talk about uh, in reference to your thoughts. And Charles, we're going to be back next week talking about the 20th episode in season four. Getting close to that finale, but I think there's, oh, there's 25 episodes in this season. So this is uh, the longest season yet. In fact, I think it's the longest season ever of Northern Exposure. <laughs> oh, the man. other ones are like 24 oh. episodes or 23. It doesn't matter. We're talking about next week, episode 20 of season four. It's called Homesick. Do you have any predictions for that episode? Oh, God. That can apply to so many characters. Uh, I'm going to throw a wild dart onto the board. Let's <laughs> say it's about Joel getting homesick about New York again. I know we already had an episode about that, but you know what? Maybe they recycled the same plot line. Yeah, I think you could use that many, many times for Joel. You know, he's the protagonist, so, uh, you know, it's not unlikely, but let's see what happens next week. Uh, Charles, I'll talk to you then. All right, see you next week. 
Northern Overexposure podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Kristen for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter, and if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.